0: You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation, brought to you by Go Wild. Go Wild is the fastest growing social media app for the outdoor enthusiast. Hunting, fishing, camping, hiking, backpacking, everything that you enjoy doing outside can be found on the Go Wild app. Now, For more information about Go Wild, just go to wherever you currently download apps, search for it, and download it to your phone, play around with it, search for me. Also, you can go to to timetogowild.com, and there's a ton of information on their website as well. So, take some time, go check out, go wild. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Iowa Sportsman Podcast the number one source for hunting and fishing information, strategy and tactics, as well as conversations surrounding conservation efforts and other outdoor activities in the great state of Iowa. I'm your host, Dan Johnson, and this episode of the Iowa Sportsman Podcast starts right now. All right, welcome back to the Iowa Sportsman Podcast. Thank you very much for tuning in. And this episode is about the rut, the full blown peak of the rut. And today we're back with Tom Peplinski of the Iowa Sportsman Whitetail 365 column. And he's going to talk to us today about strategy, tactics, tips, tricks. Everything that revolves around the w- rut, uh, what we should be doing right now, what we should be avoiding doing. Uh, we're going to talk about tree stand placement access. Um, we're going to talk about calling, uh, betting, transitions points, uh, staging areas, pinch points, all these things that are important this time of year, we're going to be talking about on this podcast. So I'm going to keep the intro short and let's just get right into today's RUT Podcast with Tom Peplinski. All right, back again to talk about deer hunting with us on today's podcast is Tom Peplinski. How you doing, man? Really good. How you been? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Now, we have kind of had a weird a weird week because we recorded the last podcast on a Monday, and now here it is Thursday of that same week, and we're recording another one, but there's there's been a week. Uh, There will be a week in between from when this one launches to almost two weeks to when the the one that you're listening to now to launches so the last one that you were on we did we discussed the pre-rut hunting tactics and uh, that was a pretty popular episode and now today it's november 8th and we need to start talking about what's going on right now it's the peak of the rut and we're going to talk about from this time frame from the 8th which is the peak of the rut all the way to maybe let's like the 20th to that uh, thanksgiving time frame and, uh, you know, just discuss the ins and outs of this time period because this is when the action happens, right? Well, it's a
1: completely different scenario. On yep. um, the last time we talked, we were talking about the onset to when does are coming into heat, and now we are we are literally talking about the does are coming into heat, the majority of the does will be bred, and then the tail end. So it's a completely different, in theory, um, it's a completely different um range of obstacles and hunting methods and, and you name it, it's right. the deer woods is, the deer woods is no longer the same. Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: And that's one thing where I, I like the rut. I love the rut. Everybody loves the rut, but there's also a disadvantage to the rut because there is this chaos where these deer that you may once have thought you know hey maybe they're patterned they're no longer patterned you know it just takes one doe to take them two miles down the road
1: right that's correct and we and we also know um at least you know i would i would propose that a mature bucks home range can triple or quadruple in size Mm -hmm. um during this time frame so if you had a pattern on a buck in that late October early November time frame, that pattern is probably blown out. It's probably gone. You should You should probably not necessarily be hunting that pattern ever, anymore and if you're hunting individual deer, this gets very difficult because that home range expands um, so like I said earlier, it's completely different completely different atmosphere in the deer woods right now because there's those coming into heat and they are calling all the shots.
0: absolutely all right, so let's start talking about it. And I'm, this is a very vague question, and I want you to answer it um, from, I guess, both the standpoint of someone who may have their own property and have food plots and whatnot to the guy who maybe is hunting public. And I think some of the answers you're going to give can probably um, you know, go to both the public and private land question, but it's, uh, it's November 8th. What should we be doing right now? to put ourselves in the best position for this peak rut?
1: Okay, so the first thing you should, just, just to kind of recap a little bit, is if, if we're into that November 8th time frame, we are in the, the part of that bell curve when does are getting bred where, you know, 80% of the does in the herd are going to be bred in this, in this time frame coming up, starting right now, November 8th. So the first thing we should be doing is in large part abandoning this. I think I can pattern this mature buck. He's on this specific bed to feed pattern. He's been here for the last three weeks and I'm going to go in there and get him. So that the first thing we need to do is recognize where we're at and maybe abandon some of those successful methods that we had earlier in the season and recognize where we're at right now. Right. Um, with that being said, uh, in general terms, a very successful way to approach this November time frame when these does are getting bred is to look for, this, this is basically how I hunt this time frame in, in general terms. For morning hunts, I'll hunt travel areas like fence jumps, um, maybe there's fence openings, classic funnels. Uh, timbered points, I touched on timbered points last time when we talked and really one of the most successful places to hunt this time of year is the downwind side of a doe bedding area. Right. So basically getting off of food sources, getting back into some cover, um, using the windier advantage, even when you're hunting these travel corridors, fence jumps whatever, make sure the wind's in your favor and basically trying to hunt cover and points and funnels between cover Get in there early and sit as long as you can. Okay, and then and then the, and then the simple strategy is at two or three in the afternoon, if you can sit that long, get down, maybe grab a bite to eat, go to the bathroom quick, and then and then you know hop right back in the stand and finish your day out closer to a food source. Gotcha, gotcha. That's a that's a pretty sound strategy for everybody. That's even public land, right. private, public. It doesn't matter. You know, you're hunting cover in the morning. The downwind side of a doe bedding area, things like that, and then you're just transitioning over to a food source in the evening. That's been a pretty solid, pretty solid game plan for me. Right. This time of year.
0: So let's break those those uh, locations out, right? So you have your your travel corridors, and those travel corridors are more than likely, depending on wind direction, going to be the same. Uh, between the bed to food right so the does are the does are still going to be on some sort of a uh, a bed to feed pattern throughout the entire rut it's just that the does or the bucks may kick them off that a little bit but they're still you know going to a bed and then they're trying to get back to a food source back and forth right so let's break these down and first let's just start off with the, the the main one which is down bed or downwind of a doe bedding area what, yeah, in your experiences, what does that look like? What is downwind of a doe bedding area look like?
1: So, does typically, and, and I can only use generalities because every farm is, is different, you know, the habitat is different where everybody hunts. But, does and fawns typically like to bed, in my experience, as close as they can to where they're eating. So if they have a food source and a water source and they have a, a brushy draw, maybe, maybe you've done some habitat management and you've if you hunt, uh, hinge cut some pockets of trees around a food plot, something like that. Even on public land, if, uh, if you're hunting public land and there's some, still some standing crops or some cut corn that hasn't gotten too much hunting pressure, those does and fawns if they can, are gonna bed as close as they can to that food source. So it's really the thickest, the thickest, most advantageous spot for a deer to bed as close as they can to a food source. And then if you can get on the downwind side of that, those bucks, a lot of times, instead of going into that bedding area and literally trying to sniff out every single doe that's in there, they can smell for 200 yards. On a decent day, a buck can smell for 200 yards anything that's upwind of them so a mature buck is gonna it knows that it's not deer aren't stupid they know that they can smell you know way better than a human but they know that if they get on a downwind side of a bedding area if there's one doe in there or 15 does in there it's it's going to be really easy for them to, to just go along that bedding area and be like yep there's a doe that's in heat in there or there's nothing here for me i'm on to my next one right so yeah, go ahead. What,
0: uh, what do you feel is close? I know that's a relative term, but it, from your experience, how close are does bedding to a food source?
1: Well, if, if it's in public land and they've, been, and they've been pressured a lot, it might be a quarter mile. If it's on one of my two farms, it's literally adjacent to the food source. So, you know, again, it's hard for me to say because you'll have to, you know, each hunter is going to have to use their own experience. Um, but as a general rule of thumb, when I say as close to, I literally mean they will bed right at the food source. If the hunting pressure is low and the habitat's available there for them, uh, they're going to bed right on it. Gotcha. And, and these are, this is does and fawns, uh, nubbin and bucks, and, and maybe even year and a, half's, uh, year and a half old bucks that are still kind of traveling with their, their mother from last year. Right. Um, you know, so if you're hunting private land, like on my two farms, Wayne and Decatur County, Southern Iowa, we do everything we can to to limit the amount of hunting pressure that's on those does and fawns at that food source. And so they'll stay, they'll stay bedded right up tight next to it all year because we let them. Yeah. So.
0: Okay. So, Find basically through, by now you should know where those bedding, you know, through scouting and through maybe doing some hunting already in the season, you should know where the food source is. And I know that changes throughout the year, but um, what would you say this time of year is a good food source, you know, another general uh, question with a general answer that we should be focusing on, not necessarily sitting on, on that food source, but knowing where that food source is.
1: So this is, this kind of goes back to a little bit of my comment earlier where you have to know to change. Yeah. So if you were hunting acorns earlier in the year, the chances of their bearing acorns left are probably slim. They're usually gone. So you've got to transition over to, any available grains. So if they're standing corn or standing beans, that's still gonna be a preferred food source. If it's cut corn or cut beans, uh, you know, 20, 30 years ago, combines were way less efficient and a cut bean and cut cornfield would maybe last for two or three weeks after they were cut. And today it's just not so much. Right. So if if a cornfield comes off, uh, you're looking at, you know, five, 10 days, To me, at most, if it's a modern combine, and uh, any kind of grain that was on the ground is going to be gone because they they just don't leave anything. Um, And still, a lush alfalfa field, a clover food plot, these green type food sources. My favorite is a lush alfalfa field. Are still going to be good until they've taken some really really heavy frosts. And this time of year, you know, it's kind of a you're flipping a coin. You don't know if you're going to get those really heavy frosts or not, but you know, a lush alfalfa field is going to draw a lot of deer until it's completely frozen out. So those, those, is, that's what I would really key in on your, are your grain crops, any kind of standing beans and corn, cut beans and corn, but only if it's, you know, recent and then, uh, you know, lush alfalfa and clover. And then, you know, if if you're planting food plots, you know, that's, you have other, you know, green food plots like uh winter rye and wheat and, you know, guys that are planting brassicas and stuff like that. But really the grain crops and alfalfa uh, really take over this time of year if they're available. Right. So kind of taking a backward step now to
0: uh, go back to this doe bedding area and hunting on the downwind side of it. Let's say you locate this and it's before the season. Uh, Do you ever put multiple stands or do you tear up and set down a lot on this particular bedding area based off the wind direction?
1: So it's, so it could be both. Uh, there's a lot of places on my farms where I'll have three tree stands and you can you can darn your see each tree stand from, from the other. And that's and that's a big movement I'm talking about, this downwind of a, a doe bedding area. And you wanna be able to hunt it with a north wind, maybe you wanna be able to hunt it with a southeast wind or, you know, different, different wind scenarios. So I'll have three tree stands all within, you know, 70, 80 yards of each other. Right. Uh, I'm, I'm on private land. All my stands are hung. Generally speaking, 90% of my stands are hung, you know, the spring before I'm, I'm, I'm hanging them in March and April and maybe I'll have to move one. Maybe I'll have to add one, but usually not so much. Usually they're in there, uh, There's an occasion where a food source will change and I'll pick up on a pattern uh, where does are bedding in a different spot or bucks are moving in a different spot and I'll quick hang a stand, but that's, on on private land it's a lot easier because you you've learned the deer herd, you've been there for a while, so a lot of these stands are there year to year and then you're just, you know, you're going back in and, and making sure they're safe and the shooting lanes and stuff are cut out of them, but I'm typically not hanging stands this time of year. Okay. Right, so
0: now you mentioned downwind uh, of a bet, of a doe bedding area. Is, this is a preferred morning hunt for you.
1: Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So if I can if I can get in. So in other words, again, going back to March and April, I'm I'm picturing myself okay. This is November 10th. And I want to get into this spot, deer are going to be bedded here. I want to be on the downwind side. So maybe I'm going to plan a stand out for a west wind, for example. So I'm going to want to come in from the east if I can, because mm-hmm. the wind's out of the west. So the wind's in my face, I want to be able to sneak up into that stand and hunt there as long as I can take it. So whether that's, I have to get out because I have to go to the bathroom or my back is killing me or whatever, but I want to stay in that stand as long as I possibly can and then get out. Uh, and then transition over to more something that's food. Because bucks are going to, in the evening, bucks know that these doe family groups are going to head out to their food sources. So typically that's where I want to be then because that's where the bucks are going to go out seeking their next doe. Right. So you are you
0: a proponent of sitting in certain locations all day long?
1: Yes, but not for me. I, I can't physically do it anymore. So back <laughs> when I was... Back when I was in my 20s and teens and thirties, you know I could I could climb up and have a knot in my back and the tree would be twisted and I could sit there all day. And today not so much. I can't do it anymore. So I know this. So I'll you know I' plan out that you know I'm gonna sit here till eleven o'clock in the morning, maybe one if it's a ladder stand. I'm actually transitioning a lot to these really nice comfortable ladder stands just because of my physical, Ability to sit in a small hang on for that many hours. Right. But yeah, I mean, if, if you can do it and you can sit there all day on the downwind side of a bedding area, there's, there's no reason why you have to get out. I, w- I would argue that if you can sit there till one in the afternoon or two in the afternoon, it still might be a better option to get down and go seek out a preferred food source for the evening hunt. I, w- I would make that argument, but you know, if you're seeing action and it's been, you know, you look at your watch and 10 minutes ago, a doe came through and there was a three-year-old chasing it or something. You don't, it's not like you have to get down. It's just, it's for me, it's not a necessity. I can't do it. I just can't do it all day anymore. Right. Yeah. Makes sense. So
0: we, we got our stand location. It's downwind of the, the doe bedding area. How far, how much room would you say you're staying away from the bedding area on that downwind side so that the I don't know that the buck doesn't get downwind to you you know
1: what i mean so yeah so if you're if you're looking at you know just timber so you have thousands of acres of timber this gets really difficult so then it then it becomes a judgment call where you're going to try and find that happy medium of i want to be close enough so when he comes through i'm going to get a shot but yet if i'm so close and he's farther yet away he's he's not going to be you know downwind of me so i i get the question for me i'm not hunting these thousands of acres of of big timber so i'm hunting uh farm country where there's draws in in a big a big section of timber for me would be like 30 acres you know, that, that would be a lot of timber because then it's just draws and more fields and CRP and, and stuff like that. So a doe bedding area, you know, could be five acres, could be 10 acres. So for me to get on the downwind side of that doe bedding area, that might be all the cover that's in that area. So it, it becomes real easy because the, the buck is going to just travel the downwind side. And, it, and for me, I'm, not, I'm right on the edge of that cover. I'm letting my scent blow out into a CRP field. Or you know over a ditch, and on a, onto a, some shallow uh, ground. It, it's just it's hard to it's hard to explain. One of my best, I guess I could go back to one of my best setups is a draw. A draw comes from the east to the to the west, and then it kind of hooks back in, and then follows to the south. And that's and that's all those bucks use the draw, and as they're using that draw and the hook back to the south, they are already on the downwind side of a bedding area so they naturally want to use that draw anyways and the fact that there's a doe bedding area just makes it a phenomenal stand for this time of year Gotcha. so it's it's fairly fairly easy to hunt that because i can get in there not bust any deer i'm already hunting in a travel corridor because it's a draw and it just happens to be oh look at that there's a doe bedding area on the downwind side of them if i if i got the right wind direction
0: right right so what about you mentioned access to this um, to this spot? How aggressive do you get with your access routes to and from tree stands?
1: By aggressive, you mean what?
0: I, I mean just like because sometimes, uh, and I know this this is my circumstance is in order for me to get to a tree stand because I'm surrounded by let's say there's a rectangle right it's laid flat uh... the east side of this rectangle is my entrance into the property the west side is the tree stand but i can't come from the north or the south uh... technically because i maybe the landowner hasn't given me permission or the west side because there's a a body of water or a river or something like that and i have to go through uh... some of the property to get to that tree stand location and potentially um, you know, s- s- at some you know, some place in that route, my my uh, scent may blow and spook deer. Okay,
1: so this my answer is going to sound is going to sound real snaky, <laughs> but if it's if it's me and I have to give something up, I'm going to give up my neighbor's ground. Okay. So on, on the scenario you just gave me where you have to come in from the East. That's your only access. And you want to hunt the West side of your property. If it's a North wind, I'm going to come in on the South side of my property. So even though I may physically bump deer, as I'm walking in on the South side of my property, all my scent is going onto the neighbor's property. Yeah. <laughs> so, so as I'm walking in, as I'm walking in, I'm, I'm saying, okay, 200 yards downwind of me, I'm, I'm going to blow every deer. And if I don't blow it, they at least know that I'm there. Right, I want that to be my neighbor's deer. Yeah. So the last thing I would want to do is walk in on the east side of my farm, have to go all the way to the west with a north wind, and come on the north side of my property where now not only my bumping deer on the way in, I'm taking the 200 yards downwind of me, and I'm telling every deer on my property that I'm I'm hunting you tonight. I'm here. Right. I'd rather I'd rather tell the neighbors deer that they're being hunted.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, um, and it's something that I, I personally do myself. So, uh, you know, you gotta you gotta put uh, the odds in your favor. So, when you're when you're downwind of this betting area, and you're sitting there and waiting, do you do any types of calling in this, in this
1: scenario? Typically, typically not. Um, I will call to a target box. So I'll I will never I will never let's say practice call on a two year old or a three year old or a year and a half or something like that I don't I don't do that if I see a target buck and I think I can call to him uh, I generally will but um, it's kind of like we talked about last time it's uh, less is more and I don't do a lot of calling unless I feel that I'm gonna have a good chance of bringing that deer in the other thing I'll say is if let's say it is a deer that I'm really familiar with and I've, I've seen him before, you know, multiple times, or, you know, let's say I have a history with this deer. He's been on my farm since he was three and then four and now he's five. And so I see him again, I'd be less apt to call to that deer than I would be a buck that I've never seen before. And Holy cow, look at that. Look at that one. I might be more willing to call to that deer because that might be the first and last time I ever see that deer. If he's out of his, If he's out of his core area, let's say he's a mile, he's expanded his home range, so now he's, instead of, you know, 400 acres or 100 acres, what he's typically using, and all of a sudden he's at 2,000 acres or 3,000 acres, and you see this guy, and you've never seen him before, that would be the one I'd be more apt to try and call to, because you might not ever see him again, so you don't really have a lot to lose.
0: Right, yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. So if it's a homebody buck that you have history with, the chances of you calling at him are are slim
1: slimmer yeah slimmer. I'm not, I'm not going to say I'm not going to do it, but you know if if I'm playing this cat and mouse game and I think I got a good chance on getting him, I might not call to him at all and just prefer to play the cat and mouse game as as opposed to letting him bust me, you know, I call to him. He comes in, he gets on the dominant side, and he busts me. Then I feel like my chances of killing that deer out of that tree stand have have just gone down. Not that it's impossible, but it just makes it that much more difficult. So, that's that judgment call again.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Now, when you are looking at a buck, and I've heard this, you know, I've heard this statement. You know, you got to try to you got to try to look at their body language. What is their body telling you? Are you looking? at... When you see a deer through your binoculars, is there anything that you're looking for in that body language that will determine whether or not you need to call at him?
1: No. So, my guess is there's probably hunters out there that that will tell you that they can do that. And I'm not saying that they can't. I'm certainly not one that would say that, you know, I can look at a deer, a buck, through my binoculars at 100 yards and, and I know, you know, there's a high... Probability that I can call to that deer or not? I, I I would not say that I can do that, right? But what I'm more looking for is is the deer nervous? Has maybe he smelled where I walked in? Has a doe busted me and so and so the doe took off and he's like, what's going on? You know, under those kinds of scenarios, I'm never going to call to that deer, right? Because if he's already nervous, you know, if he's kind of starting, I uh, mean, if if you've ever seen a big buck do it you know what I'm talking about, but it's, you know, they can be walking through the woods and not have a, a care in their world, a nose to the ground. And, and, you know, they're just looking for a hot dough. That one, I'd be more apt to try and call to, I don't, I don't care what he's doing. I don't care if he's scraping or whatever. So, so my distinguish is like a, is he not alert or is he alert? And if he's, a, and if he's alert because he smelled me, maybe a squirrel's busted me, you know, a red squirrel lit up and is barking at me. And so now he's alert, stuff like that then I'd be a lot less prone to call to them. Gotcha. Gotcha.
0: Do you ever have a, and I, I know this is a, another one of those questions, but do you ever have a scenario where you're always going to call?
1: Yeah, I, I guess the one scenario would be a, a deer that's not spooked that I have zero history with. That would That would be the one scenario where, in my mind, I have nothing to lose because right. the chances of ever seeing that deer again are probably very low, so I have nothing to lose at that point. So right. it's it's like you know what the, the other the option is you don't even try for it and then you probably never see it again. And to me, that's not that's not that's not very high odds. Right. So even even if you think well I'm, maybe I'm not going to call this deer in, you'd really have nothing to lose. So that would be one scenario where I definitely would would right. uh, give a call. And I and I actually prefer antlers over over grunting. Not that I won't grunt, but I've just had better luck with uh, antlers of course not when they're close this is when they're you know off in the distance but for some reason I know a lot of people will say their progression would start with a grunt and then work up to antlers where a lot of times I'll start with antlers but but you got to understand I'm that's 150 yards you know 200 yards something like that right, right. If, if they're close and I just want to steer them then, then it's a grunt call right so do you feel
0: that calling, uh, it, during the rut is, is kind of like a secondary tactic, one that you should only use if you have to?
1: Well, for me it is. Yeah. So, so I, w- I would hate to say that that should be that way for everybody. Cause I, I don't want to say that it should be that way for everybody. For me it is because my hunting methods revolve around the work that I do in the off season. Right. You know, whether that's food plots Uh, transition areas, fence jumps, uh, trying to find out, you know, these downward sides of bedding areas and funnels. So I put all of my resources and time and effort and even money into planning out in March and April, how I want to hunt in October and November. Right. So for me it is. Okay. But if if that's not your, that's not your plan of attack, you know, by all means, maybe, maybe calling is your ticket. You know, I'm, again, I'm not saying that's not – there is no right or wrong way with hunting. That's just my preferred method is is more the habitat and, you know, what I call like landscape manipulation where I try and uh, manipulate the deer to do, to do what I want them to do, but I'm doing that back in March.
0: Right, right. So – Well, and I'm kind of the opposite. Like, yes, I do try to set trail cameras up and stuff, but I – I, on the other hand, I don't have the ability to plant food plots. My property that I, the the property that I hunt or that I spend most of my time on is a, a piece of private ground, but I don't plant food plots. I don't have the ability to manipulate the property, but still I feel that calling is a secondary tactic because the, the utmost goal of hunting is to get into the position where you can shoot a deer without
1: having to do that tactic. Yep, and and for you that makes perfect sense. Yep, absolutely, that, absolutely. You know, I I used to hunt with a guy. I was good friends with him. We just we just kind of went separate ways over the years, like you do sometimes with friends. And I I swear that guy could call in a buck with a kitchen sink. I mean, the guy was just, you know, it was and it, it was it was almost laughable, the way the guy could call in deer, was and I would just shake my head like how how is that possible that you could do that, you know? Right. But me, that's not. I would, I'm just on the other end of the spectrum. So I know that. So I have, I guess I have two choices when it comes to calling, either do it more and try and get better at it or accept the fact that maybe I'm not good at it or whatever the case may be. But the other thing with calling, and, and this is kind of in general terms is for me, my hunting strategy is if something works for me, I try to, I try to do that more. I try to, uh, multiply the amount of things that work for me, and just repeat those things. And if they don't work for me, well, then I kind of try to abandon them. Right. So what what has worked for me are the habitat type things and making sure the tree stands in the right spot and kind of learning the deer behavior and where they bed and where they feed, as opposed to the calling. So that's just what I fall back on. Is what works for me.
0: Right. Absolutely. And that's you know that's the the I guess. Method that needs to be spread is you got to do what works for you, uh, and that's one thing that not only on this podcast but every other podcast that I'm on. You, you talk about just because my strategy or your strategy works for you, that's because you or we we don't hunt their property, they don't hunt our property. Yeah, some principles you can probably take away the principles of what we're talking about and apply it, but you got to do what's right on your property. And if it is sitting on a field edge and rattling and that's how you found success, man, I say, continue to
1: do it. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. And then I would just add one sentence to that, that if on your property, you're sitting on a field edge and you're rattling and you're on year seven and eight and nine and 10, and you still haven't rattled one in, you might want to consider not doing that anymore. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) because the opposite is true. Because I I do know hunters that repeat what they do year after year after year, and they're not successful. Right. Well, well then in that case, you should change. You should do something different because it's not working for you.
0: Yeah, I agree. I agree. All right, so we talked a little bit about calling. We're kind of all over the place with this one, but I think all the information is good. Uh, But we've talked about the doe bedding area. What about the pinch point? Because I feel... I love to hunt pinch points, but I love to hunt pinch points when I don't have a read on a buck, if that makes
1: sense. So, yeah, so early, and I I know I'm jumping back into the early season. We're not talking about that, but I, I feel like I have to because it makes sense to me. So early in October, before these bucks are really, getting out of their core areas and they're expanding their home ranges, hunting a a funnel type area, pinch point, whatever you want to call them, probably isn't the greatest technique in the world because these bucks are on their bed to feed and feed to bed pattern. And unless they're actually using that pinch point or that fence jump, you're you're just wasting your time. There's no, that the whole purpose of that pinch point or that fence jump, or when I'm making a fence and, and leaving a gate opening, is when these bucks have now exploded their home ranges because they're looking for the next available doe and they're getting out of their core areas and they're, they're now at you know 2,000 acres or 3,000 acres in range and they're just putting on miles. That's when these become effective because it's just a matter of time before they, they work out that draw or they come through that gate opening or they travel out a timbered point over a ridge and down to the next timbered point because it's an easy travel route for them, or they cross a ridge top through a saddle, that's when these become effective when the deer are putting on miles, and so that's this time of year. And so you're 100% right. If you have a pattern on a buck, there's no reason to sit a pinch point or a fence jump because you already have a pattern on that buck. Right. If you're hunting, if you're not hunting a specific buck, but you're just more hunting a time of year, it's November seventh or November eighth, and you know these bucks are gonna be out looking for the next available hot dough, that's the time to get into those spots where you're not necessarily hunting this one big 10 pointer you've got eyes on. You might be hunting any mature buck, and it might be a buck that comes from a thousand acres over from one of your neighbors' farms that is gonna come through your property, walk through your pinch point. And then that's when you're going to get a shot. I, I think that's that makes sense to me. I don't know if that makes sense to you.
0: Yeah, it does. It does. It's it's almost like out of all of the uh, locations that can be identified. Like so, for me, there's the the bedding area. There's the travel route. There's the staging area, and there's the food source in what we would call a bed to feed routine. Now, sometimes, you know. The travel corridor could go through one of these big pinch points, but I'm talking. I'm looking at a map of my property right now, and yes, a couple does do use it, and some some smaller bucks. And I'm I only know this because I have a trail camera in this pinch point, and I there's no mature buck movement through it right now. However, historical data tells me that as October starts to wind down and November starts to wind up more big bucks start using this pinch point because like you said their home range is expanding and that's when you'll get the what some people call a bonus buck show up right that the bucks that don't ever like where did he come from he's gonna show up in one of these pinch points because he's cruising the farm right so um, those are those are the spots that I that particular spot is where I go to where after I maybe hit all my downwind of my doe bedding areas and there's nothing showing up. I check my trail cameras. There's no mature bucks or hitless bucks in the area. Uh, I go sit one of these pinch points or these really big travel corridors just to, it's almost like it's, uh, it's something to sit while the, the rest of the property has time to cycle through. If that makes sense.
1: Yeah, yeah it absolutely makes sense. It absolutely makes sense. It, one thing I do want to point out is when I'm saying a buck's home range expands, I don't want to give the illusion that a buck has, and I'm making these numbers up because I think it's different depending on whether it's big timber or ag. In fact, science shows that it is different, but you know, on one of my farms, let's say a buck's core range in the summertime and in the fall is 40 acres. And I say that, because in some cases, that's that's actually what it is by me. It's like 40 acres, 60 acres. There'll be a five-year-old buck, and that's all he's using. When I say they expand their home range, their home range has always been, you know, that 2,000 acres. It's just they're not using it. Right. So when I say they're expanding their home range, what I should be saying really is they're expanding the usage of their home range, whereas they, they're not using... 90% of their home range you're not using except for like three weeks, three weeks of their, of the year for them. And this is the time, this is the time of year where if they're not with a hot doll in their core area, there's a high likelihood that they're going to be, you know, walking out some fence lines and out some draws and onto the neighbor's property and, and they're going to be looking, but it's, it's all within their home range. Right. Now I think there's, there are some examples of bucks making these excursions where they, you know, they travel eight miles and stuff and, You know, I'm I'm not really talking about that because I have no, you know, even, even a buck that has a small home range the entire year during these two or three weeks, they're going to get out and they're going to explore the rest of their home range and look for the next available dough. And that's when these funnels and pinch points and uh, timber draws. And, you know, I've said it before, that's, that's when they become hot. Right. Absolutely. All right. So after a
0: doe after a buck finds a doe he hooks back up with her and de- from my experience i feel like they go into a a pattern again right they um for me it's like I, I and i i'm using a a buck from like 2 or 3 years ago that i feel he he was on this this basically scrape route where he would i'd have him down on this field edge at like Real late at night, and then uh, on this uh, on this other pinch point, uh, early morning, and then I'd have him daylight on this. So he's making this big circle around the farm uh, until he finds another, runs into another hot doe. He hooks up with her again. So, do you feel that after a buck leaves, like goes and breeds a doe, and he he splits from her, that he kind of goes back onto a pattern again?
1: Uh, I guess I don't, I don't know what I believe. I, wh- what I believe is, is they, they want to breed every doe that they possibly can breed in in general terms. I think that's what's going on. And so when they find a doll, it's her pattern that they, that they basically take on. So if she has a bed to feed pattern or a feed to bed pattern for that 24 hours or whatever that breeding takes place over he's going to assume her pattern because he's going to be with her. That's, that's how I view it. And maybe that's not a hundred percent accurate, but that's how I view it. Right. And as soon as she's done being bred and and he's done with that dough, I don't know that he, it's it's kind of like this joke that, that, that people, guys say, you know, they're, they're really concentrated on something and then all of a sudden squirrel. you know, right. not, all of a sudden their attention's on that squirrel. I actually think that's how a deer is. I don't know that deer think like we do. We we want them to think like we do because then it's easier for us to understand what their next move is. Right. I don't think it works that way. I think they're kind of like my dog. He's got an attention span of about ten seconds, and so when a duck when a buck is done breeding, he just goes, and he looks for the next available doe. And if somebody slams a car door, well now he's heading east, and then the next and then all of a sudden. Uh, somebody fires up a tracker or a combine Oh, now he's heading south and I, I don't think he he necessarily has a plan that's just my opinion I don't know during this time of year if they if a deer has it all figured out in their head I just don't think they do I think it's just completely random they're looking for the next available doe and a car door slamming or them busting a hunter so they're on the, in their travels all of a sudden they get down with a hunter well now they're not headed this direction anymore. Now they went back the other way. You know what I'm saying? So it's, yeah. it's, it's so random that your best bet is just to put as much time as you possibly can in the woods. And just, just be out there. Right. How much time do
0: you give an area with nothing showing up before you move on to a next one, the next area?
1: Well, if it's a known, for me, if it's a known Uh, like, what do I want to say? If it's, if it's a fence jump and I know I'm repeating myself a little bit here, but if it's a fence jump an opening or one of these classic funnels or a timbered point, if I sit there, you know, two mornings, if I get the right wind and I sit there two mornings and I don't see a deer, that doesn't mean I won't go back there for a third or a fourth. Right. Um, if it's a, if it's a food plot, so let's say I, let's say I'm assuming this, 20 acre lush alfalfa field is the preferred uh, feeding pattern. So I'm getting down at one o'clock in the afternoon. I'm getting a quick bite to eat. Maybe I'm taking another quick shower and I'm getting out on this food source. And I have several, several different stance for different winds on this food source. If it's a food source type scenario and I sit it once or twice and there's nothing coming out there, well then I'm wrong. Then then it's like, that's not a preferred food source anymore. You know, if it's cut corn, maybe all the corn's gone. So, so in that case, I'll abandon very quickly, you know, and I'm like, okay, I'm wrong here. What, what do I got to do? What's the, what's the preferred food source? So then I'll try and figure that out. Maybe the next day I'll only hunt till 10 o'clock and I'll spend a couple hours in, in the truck driving around trying to find out where, where are these? here Oh, there's this, this corn here is still standing. There's a cut bean field here. That's still, or I'm sorry. There's a bean field here. That's not cut yet. And so maybe I'll, I'll try it in my mind. Figure out, okay, the deer aren't on the east side of my property. They're on the north side of my property. Or they're in one of my food plots.
0: Right. Right. Okay.
1: So, it,
0: it just, man, it I, that's, the, that's the crazy thing. There's so many variables during the rut. It's hard to, you know, give a strategy that works. And I think the most important thing for people to understand is that you have to be able to, like, be able to observe your surroundings and make a decision based off of what your surroundings and the deer are telling you.
1: You you have to adapt. You're right. You 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 have, like like I said earlier about the calling. If if you're on that field edge and you're and you're rattling and calling for ten years and you never get one, you have to change. The same the same goals for in season. You have to be able to adapt if. If you were counting on a certain food source, for example, to be a preferred food source, and it's not, you know, you have two choices. You can either adapt and try and find a different food source. or you can dig your heels in and just say, Oh, this is it. This is where I'm hunting. And in the latter, you're probably not going to be too successful. Right. So you have to be able, you have to be able to, to adapt in season, but at the same time, there's, there's that fine line being, being the guy that jumps all over the place. Because they think that they're being adaptable and the guy that's patient enough to recognize that they're really not doing anything wrong. This is a good travel core or this is a good food source. I just need to be a little bit patient here. There's a fine line between the two. Right,
0: right. So any other rut tips, tricks, or tactics that that we need to talk about?
1: The only thing the only thing that I would say and, and this is it's fairly new for me, so I'm not even gonna say that it's a it's an excellent tactic, but I think it's on the border of being hilariously fun to do, and that's a, a decoy. Okay. I've i I've, I've only been doing this for like the last five, six years and I'll even admit that I'm not even so sure that it's the most effective tactic because you do, you do seem to, uh, disturb the deer. The deer are, are pretty, uh, uh, what do I want to say? They're tense and, and a lot of times you get busted, but it is so fun when you can use a buck decoy and bring a mature buck in and have them peel their ears back and their hair stands up on the back, on their back and, and you get to shoot them. And I've had a couple opportunities where, where it's worked for me on an evening hunt. It's, even if it's not the most effective tactic out there, I still love it because it's fun. It, yeah. is, it is very exciting to see a mature buck at 200 yards, could care less about where you're at, and you got that decoy out, and you just tickle the antlers together or grunt to get him to see that decoy, and he comes in from 200 yards away with that body posture. It's, that, to me, is like the peak of excitement on a deer hunt right. for archery. Right. You know, that's a
0: tactic that I tried several years ago. When I mean several, I mean like right when I started seriously getting into hunting, uh, like 2007, eight. Then I became more mobile in my hunting style, and just stopped decoying because having to take a decoy wherever I went on top of my tree stand on my back and holding my bow and potentially sometimes a pole saw, uh, it just <laughs> it, you know it just became overwhelming. So the decoy got the chop as um, you know, and most of my most of my hunts are in cover, right. I very rarely hunt field edges because like, you know, like I don't have food plots to hunt, uh, field edges for me just means that you're, you're kind of, I don't know. I, I I don't, I I don't know. I just know that I'm not a big fan of hunting field edges when I don't have to. Yeah. So, yeah. And,
1: and when I'm using my decoy, it's all fields. It's all, you know, I got my back up to some CRP, some seven foot tall switchgrass. And I got like an acre of clover out in front of me. And so I can put that decoy out and then any deer that comes out sees that decoy. And because I'm hunting private land, my land, at the end of the night or whatever, I just take the decoy and I put it in my blind. And so to me, it, it's not the hassle of trying right. to pack a decoy in a half a mile on public land or something. Right. But absolutely. yeah, I absolutely see
0: that. All right. So the next question I have, and it's one of the last ones here for this podcast, but any rut no-nos.
1: Any rut no-nos? Uh, well, I, I will say this. I, will, I don't know if it's a rut no-no, but I will say this. A lot of times, and I've done it myself, I've I've seen it happen to, to me. It's happened to many of my friends. It happens to one of my friends every single year. And that's kind of a condition that I call like uh, rut anxiety or Um. Uh, hunting anxiety where for 9, 10, 11 months, there's, there's this buildup where, you know, we're doing food plots or we're scouting and we're, we're watching YouTube videos and we're listening to podcasts and deer hunting shows and it's, we're at, so it's like our run. So as a human, we're just primed and ready to go and October 1st comes and we're just pounding her and we're hunting and we're hunting and we're hunting and we're not seeing nothing and all of a sudden it gets to be. November 1st and 2nd and 3rd and all of a sudden this panic sets in that we're not going to get a deer and everything's going wrong and so we start taking shortcuts so we don't we don't take and, and I'm I'm a kind of a big scent guy as far as as far as wind direction I'm a big scent guy but not necessarily like keeping my scent to a minimum but if you are I see guys that'll quit taking showers maybe a doe they got out three days ago blood is still on their hunting clothes instead of walking, instead of walking, you know, half a mile out of so they know that's the best way in they walk right straight to it and, and bump out a bedding area. Cause they, it's this, it's this laziness or I don't know what you want to call it because the season's dragged on and now it's starting to wear on them. Right. They get- they're not, they're not seeing deer things aren't working out. Right. So they start taking shortcuts and it's not like they're thinking I'm going to take a shortcut today or I don't care today. It's just that it, it it beats them down and then pretty soon they're, they're making mistakes and they don't even know they're making mistakes. It's, and it's simply because it's, it's wearing them down and they're on week five and week six. and And I think that's, I think that hurts more hunters than people realize. Right. Yeah i uh I agree with you there man, and
0: I've been guilty of that several times before um just i don't know one one uh one thing that I want to say as far as a rut no no would be do not ever call at a at a deer that's busted you. Um, I don't know. I think it was like 2011 or 12 or something like that. I had this gigantic, like 185 typical 12 coming right at me. He, I don't know whether he caught my ground scent or caught, um, or the wind shifted and he caught a scent of me, but he stopped in his track. He turned around, he, he started walking away and I ended up, I ended up, uh, uh, grunting at him. I rattled at him. I I threw the snort wheeze at him everything and I never saw that buck again the rest of the rut on trail cameras. So it's like he just stood up or he he heard all that stuff and then he left. So I uh I learned my lesson the hard way on that one. Don't call to a deer that's already busted you. Go locate him again. So
1: Yeah, I think that's all season.
0: That, yeah. All season yeah. don't yeah. don't call the deer that know you're there absolutely absolutely yeah that's a good point well tom man i really appreciate you again hopping on talking about the the rut tactics with us and uh hopefully if you haven't had if you don't have one on the ground by now you do in the next couple uh weeks man
1: and right back at you and to everybody else out there just uh hang in there the best hunting is uh i'm trying to have the best hunting in my opinion but some very very good hunting is upon us on this uh peak breeding period so stay in a tree
0: be safe and that's the perfect way to end the podcast is to be safe and if you do want to be successful it's just tree stand time time to put in the work time to grind get out there sit in a tree stand or a ground blind as much as possible Uh, play the wind Follow the strategies that we talked about today, and I'm sure you will eventually get a crack at something. I don't know what, but something. And uh, man, thank you guys for tuning in. Thank you guys for continuing to tune in and support this podcast. If you haven't already, go to iowasportsman.com and take a look at there's a lot of great information on the website as well and you need to to subscribe to the magazine because this podcast only touches a hair of what is in the magazine and a hair of what is on the website so go get a subscription to the magazine and that can be found on the website as well enough talking it's time to get back to the tree grind it out the rest of november good luck and stay safe